0: Which Alan? Uh, Alan has a new process uh, now. From our last episode, he's starting a new company to get polar bears <laughs> trained to, to push down all these wind farms at the end of life. So save you about a million bucks. A, a stay turbine. tuned for that.
1: <laughs> but how much does a polar bear cost? I wouldn't have you thought know. that would be would be cheap. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes.
0: And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a recent wind farm repowering. We'll talk about a new bond push after some uh, pretty crazy photos of discarded turbines up in New York. We'll talk about plant-based epoxies, uh, piping hydrogen, the cost of green hydrogen in the future, uh, shipping hydrogen, and we'll talk about some new technology helping to shut down turbines uh, when it detects birds. So before we get going, uh, be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the show notes of uh, this podcast. Again, that's our weekly update and podcast uh, newsletter. It's great to stay in touch with everything uh, on the current edge of uh, the news cycle and be sure to subscribe to uh, Rosemary's YouTube channel, which you'll find in the show notes as well. She puts out new content each week. So if you're, you know, a wind energy and renewable energy uh, junkie, you'll definitely find a ton of value in her uh, content. So definitely subscribe when you get a chance. So let's get started here today. Uh, Alan, there's a wind farm um, run by EDP Renewables, and they've successfully re-powered uh, this. This is the Blue Canyon 2 Wind Farm. Um, but what strikes me as a little strange is is they repowered from 1.8, 1.8 megawatt turbines to, drumroll please, 2 megawatt turbines. So, like, you know, 13%. Um, does that strike you as odd? That strikes me as strange. I feel like you're you had 1.8, you're real excited to go to, like, 6.5 or something.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you can't reuse any of the components. And I think the, the benefit of repowering and what's going to see a lot of because of the age of turbines is starting to get there. In the United States, is you have a tower, you have a pad, you've got the transmission lines, you've got the transformers already there. So how much can you increase the generator by to get that extra 10% of power, which is 10% more cash flow? And the economics are really interesting on that. I've, I've just been remotely involved in a couple of these things. And it looks like... Uh, you're going to see a lot more repowering in the United States Uh, uh, and most because it's 90% of the turbines already there. And if it's in still good working condition, then why do you want to knock it all down and start over again? I think that's a pretty good argument. Why would you want to stop what's already working? It'd be like every 15 years knocking down the natural gas uh, power plant and starting over again. I think they're kind of using that same model. Like it's, pretty much up and running. We just need to maintain it. And if we can squeak out a couple more percentage points of energy production, then fantastic. And I think that's good. Rosemary, do you you see more repowering happening in the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's kind of two opposite kind of trends that we see on aging wind farms. So and it will depend on the site specifics and how old the wind turbines are and how far technology has come since then. So you'll see where, where possible. Yeah. You repower, you get a little bit more power from the same turbine, uh, extend the life of the, of the, the turbine. So that's, a a good cheap way to get more, more electricity, more energy from your, your wind farm but on the other hand you do see also some old wind farms that are, uh, you know using aging technologies and in particular really small turbines um, compared to what's available now right. some of those old wind farms like the first ones are always on the very best sites right so i think oh, we true. see uh, starting to happen maybe now in australia some wind farms are not at the end of their life but they want to decommission them so that they can make better use of that like really excellent wind resource so it's kind of in a sense like two opposites Things one is you know extending the lifetime of an existing wind farm, and the other one is getting rid of it early. And they don't just throw the turbines in the bin; they'll put them, they'll put them somewhere else. You know, there's sure. a market for for secondhand um, wind turbines. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just really depends on what the potential of the site is and how how good the turbine was to start from to start with.
0: But so they replaced the nacelles, the blades, and the top tower section. I mean, that sounds like a lot. I, I, I mean, especially with components getting more efficient. And I mean, you'd assume the cells have now weigh less given the same output, right, than they did before. I, it still strikes me as strange that mm. such a small margin of increase would be present here. I mean, does that strike you as strange, Rosemary, or not so much?
1: Well, I think it, it varies from project to project, but uh, presumably they're replacing the generator if they're going from 1.8 to, to 2. Uh, I mean, they, they would have to because you can't just, uh, <laughs> you can't just like get more out of a a smaller (laughs) generator. So I guess that they have to replace the nacelle because, um, you know, it's not not the – correct one to fit the new generator in. Otherwise, I wouldn't think that a nacelle would be something that you would need to replace because they're pretty lightly loaded. Um, And then with the blades, sometimes they um, replace them. Sometimes they just extend the tip um, and sometimes they might leave the blades and just do um, a lifetime extension, which basically involves recalculating its lifetime because when the wind turbine blade is designed, um, they will, you know, calculate it's basically how many bends it has in its lifetime to calculate the fatigue. The fatigue loading, um, and you know, twenty years ago, the manufacturers didn't have as good an understanding about how their materials behave, um, so they were quite conservative with their, you know, the the values that they would put into their calculations. And now we know more. Maybe you know that the wind turbine wasn't used, that the loads that they assumed for the the site didn't eventuate. So you can rerun those calculations, and and very often you're getting you know extra years of lifetime without having to do anything just because you they realize now that they really overbuilt it at the start. So it will just depend on whether or not those factors are relevant for that particular site as to whether or not they need to need to actually, actually change things. So it
0: sounds like then that this, they ran all the numbers and they're like, yeah, like we can keep foundation, all the infrastructure, like this is the best we can do. Is is that what it sounds like Alan?
2: It, it does. And, and, I think it's not a bad move. It's it makes sense to me, and I think on the on the blade side, as Rosemary has pointed out, there's been the projects I've been around. What they're doing is actually uh, improving the aerodynamics of the blades at times. Uh, Blade extension is one of those, uh, but cleaning up the leading edge getting, fixing all the little structural defects that may be in there today, uh, adding vortex generators. Those couple of, get a couple percentage points, more power out of the existing blades is really interesting uh, because we don't always see that. But uh, a couple percentage points of more energy production is actually a lot of cash. And so it makes sense because your, your return on investment time is, can be a year or two. And if you're talking about a 20 year time span in which you're going to be generating revenue, then you know, if you earn it back in a year or two, that makes total sense to do. And I, I think that's what's happening.
0: So let's switch to, to end of life. There's an interesting photo that has been passed around, especially LinkedIn a bunch, um, which is from an article from Observer today. Um, and it was from uh, Andrew Goodell, who's a Republican um, for the New York State Assembly. And it's him. I guess he was driving along the highway, saw a gigantic heap of discarded turbine blades and took a photo of it. Uh, in front of it, and this has really just stirred up the um, discussion about bonds and end-of-life end, of, end of life, uh, bonds to decommission wind and solar projects uh, at the end of their useful lives. Um, Alan, this is probably not that far from you up there in the Northeast. No, it's not. Um, yeah. but uh, So I expect you to go home and get you a, a nice new wind turbine to do some testing on, or a turbine blade. Um, but, I mean, does it – it kind of surprises me that there's still heaps like this, given all the bad press last year. You kind of felt like, oh, everything's kind of being dealt with. But maybe it, maybe it's not, or maybe this is on the road to recycling. I don't know. What's your take here?
2: That's a good question, because I, when I saw that article, the, the first thought is, well, that's just a holding place, right? And the, the, Those blades are going to be recycled, and they're just there temporarily. But then... Nothing in the article indicates they're going to be recycled, which is weird because we've had Veolia on the podcast, which is talking, uh, which they recycle wind turbine blades, especially they're they're reusing them in cement plants and there's not. There is a cement plant not very far from where these wind turbines are are currently stored, where that energy could be used, and so it, it is weird. And I know on LinkedIn the same thing. Like there's, and Rosemary's probably seen this. there has been a lot of discussions about recycling of wind turbine blades lately, and there's see these pictures of big piles of wind turbine blades, and someone brings up, well, why isn't someone recycling these things? And the answer is they already are. I mean, we already have the technology to do it. I'm not sure why nobody realizes it because you can. You can Google it and it's not hard to find, uh, but maybe it doesn't stand out I, or, or maybe it's country specific. Maybe that's the other thing, too, is it seems like the Midwest is in the United States is already working on recycling, but not, maybe not so much in the northeast where I am. It's just very odd. Uh, but the, the, And Rosemary, I think the bigger question is this bond issue is, you know, are they going to force the owners operators to basically put a bunch of cash into a bond. to to take down the turbines because it it doesn't sound like that was done in this particular case. And they want to start changing the rules, which is not a good time to do that once the developments already happened. But if they go back and start saying, hey, you're going to have to issue a bond to take down these turbines, doesn't that really impact the profitability of the wind turbine sites?
1: Well, there's plenty of places in the world that require something like this. And in fact, we were talking uh, on a recent podcast, we talked about this new decommissioning method that, um, you know, the process where it was like chopping down a tree to get the, the pulling the towers down and the whole point of them developing this new process was that it was cheaper. And that meant that they had to set aside less for the decommissioning because they had a cheaper process. So, um, which
0: Alan, Alan has a new process now from our last episode, he's starting a new company to get polar bears (laughs) trained. To to push down all these wind farms at the end of life, they so save you about a million bucks. A stay turbine. tuned for that.
1: <laughs> but how much does a polar bear cost? I wouldn't mm, have thought know. that would be would be cheap. Well, <laughs> be you know, them.
0: The way we've increased chicken size here in the U.S. I mean, I'm sure we could get polar bears into the four or five metric ton range. You know, just a couple of years of um, anyway.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, this is one of those issues of wind turbine blade recycling. It's um, like, or oh, the wind turbine blade's going to landfill. It's one of those things that comes up again and again and again, and it's just, I mean, it's, It's a bit weird for several reasons. I mean, first of all, because wind turbine blades are 5% of all of the things that are made out of composite materials and face the exact same um, recyclability issues. It's also the same as any, you know, there's any number of products that are technically recyclable but aren't recycled, you know, like plastic bottles and even glass bottles are not recycled nearly as much as you might assume because they're, you know, recyclable. But if it's cheaper to use virgin materials than it is to use the recycled materials, materials then that's what people are going to do and it's why you see you know aluminium is highly recycled and um, yeah plastic bottles less so Um, so yeah it's the it's an economic question of either the the technology needs to get better that um you know recycling something all those processes that you do to um take a a blade and, and recycle it into a usable material has to be so cheap that it can compete against virgin material or you need to force people to do it for some some reason. And we've seen it a lot in plastic bottles. You see um, heaps of com- consumer pressure on the manufacturers. And now you do see bottles that are made out of recycled plastic, not recyclable yeah. plastic, but actually recycled. And it's not because it's economical to do it like that, except for that customers won't buy it if it's um, if it's not. And so with the the wind turbine blade issue, you, I mean, it's yeah. Another another thing is that it's not that weird to require a, a developer to set aside money for decommissioning. I mean, you do it with nuclear power, and you do it with many wind and solar um, farms uh, around the world. So I, I got no problem with with them doing it for wind as well. And then the other thing is, you got to compare it against what a wind turbine's replacing, and then they're replacing, you know, coal power plants that involve many times the amount of mass of, you know, coal being dug up. And I mean, it doesn't just disappear when you burn it, right? It goes into the atmosphere and it goes into um, into ash, which is full of toxic chemicals, and um, yeah, much more massive than the uh, amount of waste that a wind turbine. A wind turbine makes for the same amount of energy produced. So it's just, uh, yeah, like I said, I just can't understand why people keep on raising and raising and raising this issue. But it's just that thing where if you've got um, a green technology, it has to be a hundred percent perfect. Otherwise, everyone you know is outraged about it. It's not enough that it's better on every single metric than the incumbent technology. It has to be literally perfect before people will stop uh, carrying on. So. I'm a bit bemused, but kind of used to feeling that way by now.
0: Well, sticking with the topic of recyclability, um, there is a the core, the composites core program uh, from the U.S. Department of Energy and uh, NREL, NREL researchers and some others are doing work into finding carbon fiber composites with bio based epoxies. Obviously, we had Green Boats on the program uh, just a few episodes ago, and you know they've been at the forefront of using uh, bio based epoxies and other materials in their boats and, and in their you know uh, more mass uh, market products including their nacelle uh, that they did um, last year. Um, Alan you're our resident um, materials expert along with Rosemary but um, what what do you see here with bio-based epoxies? Are they going to really be able to work and is there sort of an alternative to carbon fiber in our future? I mean what is some of this research leading us to?
2: Well th- I think the goal is to, to really break down the uh, the epoxy system and, and to get all the carbon fiber and fiberglass back out of the blade and, and try to reuse it in some other industry, probably automotive or something similar to that. The, the interesting piece of this is that uh, the, the effort that has gone into making this plant-based epoxy, I haven't seen a lot of structural data on it, which is odd because at the end of the day, the reason you're using epoxy is because it's so dang good structurally. <laughs> and, and there's uh, the, the, what clicks in the back of my head is like, oh, let's just say there's there is this plant-based epoxy, and it, just say it works great in the laboratory. We don't really know how it's going to work for like leading edge erosion, hot, cold, wet, all those things that composites engineers do all the time. And you wonder why they're always in the lab all the time pulling samples apart is because they're trying to make sure that the the epoxy system and the, and the fiber doesn't break down over time. And you just got to feel really uncomfortable. It's like when we made the switch from like wood airplanes to aluminum airplanes. Like, oh, you know, there's a little transition there. We need to figure it out. We went from aluminum airplanes to carbon fiber airplanes. It's like it was like a ten year period where we we're tra- or twenty year period. We were trying to figure it out to make sure that we didn't kill anybody. And and yet we got this weirdly weird um, plant based epoxy thing going on, which is great. Maybe it works great. But you would like to see some published numbers on it. you like to see some data on it. And Rosemary, wouldn't you be just saying, you know, it sounds awesome, but until someone gives me the data set, uh, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, there were a few claims in the article that I read that um, need some evidence to, to back them up before I can really believe them because they say that um, that you can – um, you can separate, you know, degrade the, the resin at room temperature. Room temperature, right. Um, so, I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, that's great, but obviously you've got some sort of tension between making a material that's durable and one that's easily recyclable. So, you know, if it's so easy to separate the fiber from the resin in, um, you know, when you want to recycle it, how confident are we that it's going to be durable in operating conditions? Um, So, you know, like normally when they're trying to make recyclable blades using the thermoset, the the idea is that you can heat them very high and and melt the the resin out again, um, which you obviously can't do with a, a a thermoset but you know at least then you know well if i need to heat this to 80 degrees that my blade will never see that in in the um in in its except operational lifetime except
2: for lightning except for lightning
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah right okay um yeah i guess that, that is i mean lightning just complicates anything that you want to do in a wind turbine <laughs> blade these days that's yeah, my, it like it, that's my yeah. general general take yeah. Um, and then the other claim in the article was that they said that they can um, they can maintain the fiber quality over at least three material lives um, so they can recycle it without any detriment to properties but uh, I, I mean one that's very rarely the case that you would get something exactly as good as it started and two if it has got a limit to how many times you can reuse it then to me that says that it's degrading a little bit each time sure. so um, yep. yeah like it it sounds really cool, and um, I'm not seeing any any red flags. But I, I, would like to see the, the evidence behind some of these really cool features that the that the product has, because you know obviously these aren't the, this isn't the only research team that's been trying to do this. We've been trying for decades to make better, more recyclable um, composite materials.
0: Well, moving on, uh, Siemens Gamesa is considering replacing power cables offshore with pipes um, and they're trying to use a thermoplastic (laughs) composite uh, to jointly transfer not only hydrogen, but I don't know, Alan, is this power as well? I'm, I'm not really clear on what they're what they're trying to accomplish here.
2: It seems like they're trying to create hydrogen on site and then pump it back to shore. And I know Rosemary is, you know, super into hydrogen. And is the fuel of the future. But it, it does seem a little, I mean, I understand the process of that, right? So you've got a wind turbine makes electricity, you, you break down water, you get hydrogen and oxygen, you take the hydrogen, you shove it down a pipe, and then out comes the other end. So it's not complicated, right? I mean, you can send electricity down wires, you send hydrogen down pipes. Okay, sure. It, it's basically the same difference. However there's a lot of energy lost in that in that mix. And Rosemary, you want to describe how much energy you're losing when you make that transition to hydrogen gas or hydrogen liquid?
1: Oh, uh, well, yes, yeah, so I'm assuming that they're going to be um, transporting hydrogen gas through the, the pipes. Um, I guess it could be liquid, but that would yeah, that would really, really surprise me if you want to liquefy hydrogen. And it takes a third of the energy in the hydrogen to to, to liquefy it. Um, and you never never get that back. Um, and yeah, I think with this, this idea of offshore hydrogen, it is an interesting concept because there are some, some. Efficiencies to be gained by doing it that way. If you don't need to convert the, you know, the rotational energy to electrical energy and then transform it, and you know, put it along a a, a lossy um, cable, and subsea cables are expensive and they have problems. So I can see that there are a lot of problems that you solve by putting the uh, electrolyzer in the wind turbine. You get some efficiency and solve some, um, well, bypass some engineering problems, but you also are going to create as many as you're going to solve i i believe um yeah i'm i'm glad that we're trying this i think it should be tried and right. as much as i'm yeah i'm i'm pessimistic about the hydrogen economy and that i don't think hydrogen is going to replace electricity and everything that people say it will a hundred percent for sure we're going to need a lot more hydrogen than we have now green hydrogen than we have now even if it's only to replace what we you know already use dirty hydrogen for. Um, so I'm glad to see someone try this project, but I suspect that we're going to find out that um, you know putting all this complicated equipment offshore, is really causes painful, painful projects because in general, the the rule of thumb for offshore is that anything at all that can be done onshore should be done onshore because it's so much cheaper. It's really expensive. Um, if you're adding any complicated equipment that needs maintenance or might uh, malfunction, just costs so much and especially so much in downtime um, to get crews out there. So glad that we're trying it, but I suspect that we won't we won't see this be the widespread solution.
0: So to to be clear, is this saying that wind turbines, like some of these wind turbines don't produce electricity? I mean, they don't produce electricity in the sense that they're not pumping electricity back, but they're producing electricity, converting it to hydrogen and then shipping the hydrogen back. That's, that's how this works. So instead of piping or cabling the electricity back, they're going to convert it and then convert it back. That's, that's the solution here.
1: I don't know if they need to convert it back. So I, I don't think it's a normal. You have to look up this company. I think they're called Hygro. That they have, an, yeah, they have an idea to. And Siemens probably have have their own. You don't just take a normal wind turbine and kind of you know collect the, connect the power cord into an electrolyzer. <laughs> you you'll bypass a few component electrical components. Right. And Alan probably can give a better idea about what those are. You can bypass some components get rid of some conversion losses that you have in a normal wind turbine. So you start with a little bit more. Um, Maybe you're also not so limited in the um, you can put a bigger electrolyzer than you might might be economic to put in terms of a generator. So maybe it was only economic to put a two megawatt generator, but you can put a three or four megawatt electrolyzer. And so you can, um, you know, use more of you can get more energy out of a, um, a wind turbine than than you would otherwise. Um, and then you would transport the hydrogen. You could convert that back to electricity at the other end, but that, you know, you're going to end up with um – a lot less electricity from the conversion losses there. I, The more sensible thing would be to do that when you needed hydrogen. So, you know, you'll um, either store it or use it for, I don't know, whatever, whatever thing you think you're going to use hydrogen for in the future.
0: And has this been something that's been done before? I mean, are there any offshore or onshore turbines producing hydrogen actively now, or is this completely novel?
1: I don't think that anybody's actually in, installed one yet. But there's definitely several projects in development.
0: Yeah, I, I've seen the same thing. I think there's
2: some... I want to say off the coast of off the coast of Germany right now. I I think there's a couple small efforts and good. I I, you know we can criticize sort of the whether it's going to be worth it or not. That's an economic argument, right? I think the technology wise, they need to figure it out. And I'm I'm glad somebody's trying it and trying to see how efficient it is and and can they scale it up and are, are there some savings to be had? And until you. Rosemary, and I talk about all the time. It's one thing to do it in the laboratory. It's another thing to do it in real life and to get some real numbers is, are important here because you're not going to not going to know until you, in, in this case, build it and try it. Good. Let's see what it does.
0: Well, speaking of hydrogen, um, new report that shipping liquid hydrogen is about five times expensive per unit of energy as um, liquid and natural gas. Um, Alan, I mean, is demand for liquid natural gas? I mean, is it going to continue to be significant? I know people hate, yeah. their electric range. People hate their electric ranges, so it's going to continue to have its, its use. But um, what's what's important about this uh, about this article with comparing well, it, these two gases?
2: It's just this: the economics of it don't make sense, right? And, and there is a lot of uh, shipping of liquefied natural gas LNG around the world at the moment it wasn't but a couple of weeks ago where there were ships headed to europe uh to support um germany's energy crisis and tried to help out there and then i think china was doing the similar thing there were were lng ships rolling around uh trying to you know maximize price right go where the demand is high and you put it on a ship and you send it over uh, you know the hydrogen thing is because its energy density is not there it really hurts you because you, it costs you the same amount to transport it but it's just a lot less energy contained within inside of it so it doesn't make sense right I mean, eventually it gets all gets down to the economics follow the money good example follow the money and if there isn't any money in it people won't do it and, and the shipping it doesn't make any sense and just like we're talking about making hydrogen local, I think that's going to be the key. If you're going to make hydrogen, make it local. There's no reason to ship the stuff uh, uh, or maybe to ship it through pipes. I Man, that's a big discussion point. But Rosemary, am I, am I off here? This just seems like hydrogen so easy to make if you're going to make it just do it where you are. Don't put it on a ship. That's just going the wrong way.
1: It is really interesting because if you look at you know, there's a lot of countries around the world have hydrogen um, strategies, and very many of them rely on either exporting or importing hydrogen over yeah. a long distance. So. I- japan korea and germany would be the the main ones that people are talking about um, and we actually right now the very world's very first liquid hydrogen ship is in a port in victoria in australia so there's this project it's called hesc uh, i can't remember what that stands for hydrogen export i guess is the h and e and it's a, a joint partnership between australia and japan um, and this particular project has gotten a lot of attention because it's incredibly dirty. And um, if I describe the steps to you, it just sounds so silly compared to just shipping coal and and burning that. But so there's um, they're taking brown coal in Victoria and then they gasify it um, to make hydrogen and there's a lot of emissions associated with that and those emissions are just going into the atmosphere. Um, And then they – Put the hydrogen onto trucks, and they drive it. Uh, I think it's like 400 k's to the port where they liquefy it, and you lose a third of the energy in the hydrogen to liquefy it. They put it on the a, a ship, which is um, it's been modified from an LNG ship, but obviously the two <laughs> the two gases or liquefied gases are very different. And hydrogen with its tiny oh, yeah. molecules um, and very low um, boiling point. Right, people. Expect there to be a lot of losses from boil off and also from, um, from just leakage. So then it's going to travel on this liquid hydrogen ship, 8,000 kilometers to Japan where they're going to do, you know, whatever they want to do with it, either, um, put it in a power, power station or, um, fuel cars, And so, yeah, I mean, overall, the emissions are much higher than if we just shipped Japan coal and they burned that. Um, They've bought offsets for the the project to, um, and a lot of people are calling it blue hydrogen, which I think is a real stretch to call it blue hydrogen when they're just buying offsets. They eventually plan to, um, capture the carbon and and store it, but they've been trying to find a suitable location for a long time now and, um, still haven't. So
0: can you reiterate real quick what, uh, the difference between blue and green are?
1: Oh, yeah. So um, blue, well, normal hydrogen that what, you know, 99% of hydrogen today is made from natural gas or or coal, mostly gas. Um, And the emissions just go into the atmosphere. So yeah, it makes a a lot of emissions and a lot more compared to if you just, um, you know, burned coal, um, or or another fossil fuel, then there's blue hydrogen, it's the same thing, but they capture the emissions and store it or, or use it. Um, And then there's green hydrogen, which is made from renewable – using renewable electricity to uh, electrolyze water and split the H2O into hydrogen and oxygen.
0: Okay, got it. Yeah,
1: so there's a lot of debate about um, which of these are clean hydrogen and um, what you can call blue, but I never heard anyone call something blue hydrogen where there was no carbon capture and they just bought offsets from somewhere. So that's – That's been a lot of the focus of the discussion about this project is about it's incredibly dirty and the dumbest way to make electricity in in Japan, you know, to export um, energy from um, Australia to Japan. It's dumb economically. It's dumb for the environment. But I actually think it's a really great project because finally someone's going to put um, hydrogen on a, on a ship and transport it because all these countries have so much um, volume of hydrogen that they're expecting to be exporting long distances between countries that have too much energy, uh, renewable energy, and countries that have not enough. Finally, we'll be, we'll be trying it out. We'll see. You know, everyone talks about the the cost and the, the losses, uh, inefficiencies, we'll be able to actually see what, what are these, how much hydrogen is left at the other end once that ship, you know, gets um, 8,000 kilometres away. So, yeah, I'm uh, interested to, to see how this project works out, um, even though on the base of it, it's such a horrible, dirty <laughs> dirty project, at least. It's, you know, we're doing something. Finally, we stopped just talking about exporting hydrogen and we're, we're actually going to do it. And I suspect we'll find out this is a stupid way to transport hydrogen and that it would make more sense to convert it to ammonia or maybe it will be just too expensive to export a lot of hydrogen and everyone will make it for themselves. So I don't know yet, but at least it's a step on the road to finding out what the, the most sensible solution is.
0: And so sticking with hydrogen, there's a, a new report from Wood McKenzie. Um, obviously, they do a lot of consulting and, and analysis and forecasting. Um, and one of their analysts is uh, claiming that green hydrogen should be able to be produced for a dollar a kilogram in some countries by 2030 um, Alan does that seem uh, realistic to you
2: it could be I did the look at the breakdown of what the you know what the consumer cost is for for hydrogen. And you know where are the costs in in the in, in the manufacturing and the handling and the shipping I and mean, what what is it what do you pay what are you paying for at the end and It's surprising how much is in shipping. Like you could you could make it for a dollar, but it's still going to cost you X amount of dollars to get it shipped, and it's a lot more than the cost of the hydrogen itself. In fact, it was like uh, the consumer cost is like. Oh man, I forget the the, the units here, but it's like twelve dollars. to say it's twelve dollars and one dollar was made to the hydrogen. Well, there's another eleven dollars in the middle, which is just the transport and, and handling of the of the of the hydrogen. And so you can make hydrogen free. It's still not gonna really lower the price enough to make it economical. And I think that was the real kicker, was just sort of the energy density of the material and the cost to transport it. It doesn't make sense. And if we're if we're following the money here, there isn't any money. And so you got to you got to kind of pick where your battles are here. Right. If, if you if you look at the distribution of where all your costs are, you try to hit the big ones first and, and leave the little ones alone. They're attacking one of the littlest costs in the total cost structure, which was which was odd. Uh, and as and, 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 So, when I think as a general consumer, you think, oh, this is great, right? And I think this is part of why these articles are written, is because the consumer picks it up and goes, oh, that's really awesome. And then some economist says, or business person sits down and says, yeah, but, (laughs) but it's still 11 bucks to get it to you. So it doesn't matter. And I I think that's where, uh, when you know, Rosemary and I have been doing engineering. Probably way too long, actually. So when you when you get down to the, the so the nuts and bolts of it, you're like engineers, just go ah no. And, and 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 I think we're a little dismissive at times, but we're dismissive because we we try to gauge what the real costs are from inception to final product, and if you can't make the money or you can't build it in the time you need to, then it's not worth doing. And and I, I'm totally okay. I think Rosemary is too, right? We're, we're okay on trying stuff. I'm like, awesome, right? Let's, let's try it. And there's, there's no reason we shouldn't make the world a better place. Everybody we should be trying to make the world a slightly better place. The question is, is it the right time for that, right? A lot of engineering is not so much, um, is it this device cool or is it not great tech? It's a combination of great tech, great cost structure, proper timing. And we're missing one or two of those <laughs> in this hydrogen equation at the moment. And Rosemary, you you, you see uh, like there's just if we're all just sitting around uh, and having lunch together uh, there's 100 engineers, how many are saying this hydrogen thing's going to work out in the end? 1 2
1: Oh, from en- engineers, yeah, not not so many. Um Yeah. Yeah, but uh I think engineers can be um too dismissive sometimes and I also I think with the hydrogen debate (laughs) yeah with the hydrogen debate there's also something I think a lot of engineers miss which is just because it's not the technically best solution doesn't mean that no, it's not true. the one that's gonna happen you know there's sure. a really a, a lot of political will to make it happen and just your sure. average environmentally conscious person on the street really thinks that hydrogen is the the solution that we need um, so I I see a lot of a lot of pressure so I think we'll see more hydrogen than you would get if you just oh we got will. engineers to design the system and yeah. everybody else just did what they said sure um, <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, maybe that wouldn't uh, engineers often miss um, you know miss important things like you know social factors and that sort of thing. So oh, okay, um, I'll give you that. Yeah, okay, so, so yes, I, so true. I do. I do think it's it's good that engineers don't just run the whole show without any um, any input from anyone else. <laughs> But, yeah, Yeah. no, I think a lot of engineers are going to be surprised at how much hydrogen we see, um, even though in some cases it's not feasible. So I think that there are some use cases that are just so ridiculously inefficient that it is just not going to happen. Like um, in Australia, blending hydrogen into natural gas pipelines to continue heating homes in that way Doesn't make sense. Maybe there's more of a case for it in Northern Europe, but there's definitely not in Australia. Passenger cars, just no way, just never, never gonna happen. You would have to really, really subsidize a lot. But then I think there's a lot of in-between cases where, you know, maybe hydrogen can be made to work as well as something else. And with a little bit of, um, you know, subsidy, a little bit of uh, a few government programs to, you know, grow the industry um, ahead of, you know, the, the market. I think you could you could see some um, but what I did think was really interesting about this report was um, so you know I assume that they've you know they've got their set of set of assumptions and say this is a plausible scenario where you end up with dollar a kilo hydrogen which would be very cheap. They did it with um, cost of electricity it needs to cost $10 a megawatt hour or lower which I think is definitely plausible in in the future for places that you know have a lot of um, a really great solar and um, wind True. co-located. Yeah. Definitely achievable. Um, and then the other point was with the capacity factor of fifty percent. So the electrolyzers are running on average half the half the time. The time. So again, that's you know like a, either a, a really good wind farm on its own could reach fifty percent capacity factor. A solar farm probably never can because you know it's night half the time. Um, <laughs> but solar and wind together could reach that. But one thing that you can't. You can't do, with if you need a 50% capacity factor, you can't just turn it on when the prices go negative on an electricity grid. You know, that's never going to be 50% of the time. So I think that super cheap hydrogen isn't going to happen in combination with using hydrogen to balance a variable renewable electricity grid, which is something people, politicians especially, have been talking about since the very start of, you know, the buzz about the hydrogen economy and has always seemed to me that the most – Unrealistic um, part part of the idea that you would ever be able to make really cheap hydrogen by buying an expensive electrolyzer. Even if they get cheaper, you buy a, a piece of equipment and then run it. You know, ten percent of the time to you know match your variable renewables. That uh, I think this report shows that that's that's not something that's going to happen.
0: So are are you as concerned about the price target, or are you just more concerned with just swapping out? Grey um, hydrogen for green.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely the first thing that we need to do because currently hydrogen is an emissions problem rather than an emissions solution. It's an incredibly um, high emissions uh, industry if you you know add up the whole world's use of it and. Um, the interesting thing about the report is it's while well, it's saying that green hydrogen could end up uh, under a dollar a kilogram that compares to the current cost of gray hydrogen so that made from fossil fuels with no carbon capture that's around $1.70 a kilo in 2019 and likely much higher now that the natural gas that they they're making the hydrogen from is is more expensive so i think that's really important that green hydrogen needs to get cheaper than gray um Otherwise, we're going to have problems with with cheating. I think you know, like as we rush to massively expand the um, the hydrogen economy, there's this real risk that we end up increasing emissions because if we can't keep up or we can't make the projects economic with green hydrogen, then people are going to be substituting in in grey. Or there's going to be the risk that happens. Um, you know, even just as a stopgap. And you know, it's because it's so inefficient to convert from gas to hydrogen back to electricity compared to just burning the gas and getting electricity in the first place that you end up with more emissions um, by going through hydrogen so to me there is a risk with a hydrogen transition that we end up in the short term with a much you know more emissions intensive um, outcome and I think the fact that green hydrogen is predicted to come down in cost um, to below that of grey is really promising that that is maybe not so likely to happen.
0: Well, let's transition here to our final topic for today, which is um, one of Rosemary's favorite uh, animals, which is the common bird, uh, and <laughs> some technology to help protect them. Uh, obviously, this is a big cause of contention. You know, this is one of um, our former president Donald Trump's big claims that you know they just kill tons and tons of birds. Obviously, they do kill a certain amount of birds, which we've discussed at length in different shows. But there's a tool um, from a company called Identiflight, and it's done. It's won some awards over in Australia for its performance uh, in 2018. Uh, it was installed in a Tasmanian facility and was found to cut eagle deaths, uh, the Cattle Hill Wind Farm, down by more than uh, 80%. So uh, rosemary, obviously birds uh, are a big concern. We want to keep them alive, um, minimize their risk as much as we can. Uh, but I guess my question to you first is, what's going to incentivize companies to buy this? If you already have a wind farm that's operating, um, you know, activists aren't or protesters aren't beating down your doors. Are you going to spend the money to put something like this on your wind farm? And what what's going to force people to do this?
1: I don't think that they will put them on a wind farm if there's not a lot of bird deaths there, and they're not, um, yeah, if it's not a problem that conservationists are upset about, or if they're not breaking the rules of their development. Um, I I think that this is going to happen in in places where birds are a problem for getting approvals um, or for continued social license to operate. So the wind farm in Tasmania, where this system was trialed, um, it, is in an area that is home to, I think it's a little wedge-tailed eagle. So the one we have on the mainland, a wedge-tailed eagle, it's um, it's one of our best Australian birds. It's, it's a humongous bird. It's like 2.3 meter wingspan, really, really big. Um, and they're not endangered but it has a little cousin in Tasmania they're a bit smaller and they're they're an uh, endangered bird and they were being affected by this wind farm and so if the wind farm wants to continue to operate then they need to find a solution to that and and so they have you know effectively here done that and now they're going to translate it to other other wind farms that have problems with birds. I know we've talked about some on the podcast in some of those um, was it Great Lakes um, uh, development that people are very concerned about the potential impact on birds. And I would see this as an easy way that you can um, get around it saying, you know, we're, we're going to monitor and we can install this system if um If it turns out that birds are being killed, you know, our our assessment says that we don't think that they will be. Uh, If we're wrong, then we'll install this system and we'll um, turn off the wind turbines anytime there's a bird around. And I just think that just having that technology available in your back pocket should make it a lot easier to, you know, reassure everybody that you're on the side of the birds and you're going to do what it takes to keep them safe.
2: Uh, I just watched a presentation by Energy Systems based up in Vermont, not very far from here. They were uh, looking at bat deterrent systems, and they were tracking the flights of bats. I thought, my gosh, that I mean, like radar tracking the flights of bats. That's pretty cool. And if if we can do that, I think the next stage is not so much to turn off the turbine. I think the next stage is to have some way of discouraging the birds, the bats, whatever, to 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 fly around these areas. I think that's ultimately where it's headed. I know we I don't know if we talked about this in the podcast. Maybe we did a couple of probably ten episodes ago now, where we're painting one of the blades like half black, half white. It seemed to make a big difference in bird deaths. Like it reduced them like sixty percent some crazy number, right? So, uh, yeah, and you got to wonder, the technology is only going to get better, right? As as we learn more about what would discourage birds from flying into wind turbine blades, and it seems like that's the issue, like the birds actually have to physically contact the blades. If we can reduce that in any measure, and just monitoring where they're at is such a huge step because now we understand what's going on and why are they there? Maybe there's a reason why they are there. Maybe there's insects or some sort of rodent, on the ground around there, we could move. Uh, I think the technology just lends itself to sort of more study, and until we have those tools in place, we can't we can't do the things we're going to need to go do. So these are just early steps. I just find it fascinating that the technology is catching up so fast that we can monitor the flight of birds very accurately and bats and other things it's just incredible
0: yeah and this one's more uh actually more optical based than radar so it has a couple uh high-res stereoscopic cameras yeah and it has eight uh wild wide field of view cameras as well so it looks like it's using more uh, optical than radar um but you're right it's it's seems like it's complicated um seems like it works pretty well but yeah it's it's uh, good question about if there should be a hybrid solution. You, like you said, should you paint the tips black? And you know, is that going to get you closer from the eighty uh, percent reduction to you know upwards of ninety percent? Like, what what kind of hybrid system could maybe companies use to not just choose one solution but get the best of all of them?
2: It's a it's a good question and. I don't know if everybody saw this, but there's been some recent video of the latest full self driving by Tesla. And if you watch the how, yeah, which fast is not even
0: close, which is not even close to full no, self driving, okay. by the way. Okay, yeah. yeah,
2: all right. So it's a misnomer. I, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. But if you watch how that that system works, and that's a vision based system, vision based system too, right? How fast it tracks humans and non humans, and where stop signs, and speed limits, and bicyclists, and the whole thing. The 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 ability to Uh, sense, detect, and accurately project what those objects are is um, mind-boggling, mind-boggling how well that happens. And That technology will eventually flow down. It'll take years. I mean, it'll probably take a decade, right? But the next thing you know, you know, we'll be doing things on wind turbine blades. We'll see that bird come and we'll make an adjustment to the wind turbine, kind of shoo it away. Maybe make the wind turbine make more noise, right? Change the pitch of the blade, make it a little more noisy just for that brief instance to turn the bird away. Those are things that are possible with a little more technology. We're just going to take a, we've got to give it a little bit of time to, to flesh itself out. But that's the future, man.
0: Yeah. And of course, a lot of this technology is uh, in use. I mean, tennis, they had the Hawkeye system. That was their optical in or out system that has since been adopted by Major League Baseball. They were using a radar based uh, the track track trackman system. They're now going to the Hawkeye system, uh, which essentially tracks every player's movement on the field in real time. It's crazy. Yeah, Yeah. everything. So um, it seems like these are similar technologies. And it seems like given a choice, more companies are maybe choosing optical versus uh, like radar sensors when, I don't know, I I don't know the the specific applications. And and I don't know if that, you know, the tracking systems that would work in tennis or baseball would work in something like this, where you have to track pretty far out in front, right? Maybe multiple, multiple hundreds of yards. Um, So you'd be be interested to see how uh, some of these are overlapping and where, um, you see technology being borrowed or you know adapted from different uh, sectors where it's already in use matter of time it's all it is it's a matter of time all right well that's going to do it for this week's episode of the uptime wind energy podcast thanks so much for listening uh, wherever you are on the web or on spotify youtube itunes stitcher uh, definitely leave us a review share the show with a friend and be sure to subscribe to rosemary's youtube channel which you'll find in the show notes below and to our weekly uh, podcast and news update called Uptime Tech News, which, again, you'll find in the show notes of this podcast. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks and being efficient with maintenance, repairs and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. This is why it just makes sense to install a Weather Guard Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your technicians are going up tower maximize the time efficiency of your techs, and prevent future lightning damage by installing our strike tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.